If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. You've undoubtedly heard of Shakespeare and Dante, but are you familiar with Du Fu, the 8th century writer recognised as China's greatest poet? Spencer Mizzen speaks to Michael Wood to learn more about the medieval writer and what his life and work can tell us about Chinese culture. So, Michael, Du Fu, my first question is, when did you first come across him? Well, this is a long story. I first came across Du Fu when I was at school and I walked into a bookshop in Manchester and a new Penguin classic was on the shelf of late Tang Dynasty poetry. And I picked it up and I opened the pages and there was a poem by Du Fu. And I'm sure everybody watching this podcast will have had the same kind of moment when you open a book that opens a window on a world that you never dreamed existed. And at that point, when I was, however old I was, 16 or something like that, you know, I didn't know about Chinese history, really, you know, anything, and, and the Tang dynasty. But the idea that people who lived in the Tang dynasty could express themselves with such incredible um, sophistication and intimacy and at a time which is the age of Beowulf in Britain. I mean, we're not far off the age of Athelflaed of Mercia and Alfred the Great in China, and yet it's a, a world away. So he always interested me, and over the years I've kept an interest and when we did the big story of china films we did a sequence on him and then i made a film more recently with Sirian mckellen doing the readings of the poetry and it was at that point that chinese friends were saying to me come on why don't you do a little a little book on him you know so this is truly a labor of love actually <laughs> but yeah he's very very interesting and extraordinary person stephen owen the great harvard scholar of chinese said to me when we were making the films, he said, you know, we're, we're so dominated by the Western canon that we grade the great writers of the past in, in our terms. But what you have to think there's Shakespeare, there's Dante, and there's Dufu, you know. And, and the moment you start thinking like that, you go, wow, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And he lived in incredible times, you know. Chinese history is just fabulous there's no end to the the wonderfulness of chinese history i'm biased of course because i've spent a lot of years writing a massive history of china but it is it's so stunning and the great sinologist simon lays wrote that china's the other pole of the human mind unless we we really are in the west kind of understand china we won't understand human nature even you know what is unique to us what is universal human values these are big big questions and it's when you turn to these great writers of the Tang dynasty who were expressing the human heart in ways which nobody else had at that point then you start to really open these questions up it seems to me so with that in mind could you give us a brief introduction to Du Fu's life because 
a lot of people listening to this podcast probably won't know a great deal about him. So I just wonder over the course of two or three minutes, if you could introduce us to him. Yeah, Dufu was born in 712 and he died in 770. And that was the later part of the Tang Dynasty. The Tang Dynasty is one of the greatest of all Chinese dynasties from the 600s till about 900. If you do, and I have done Vox Pops in big Chinese cities at the Expo in Shanghai, what's your favorite period of Chinese history to the ordinary public of China? And what's the greatest period of Chinese history to the ordinary public of China? And although a few people have other opinions, virtually everybody says the Tang Dynasty. And you say, well, why? Why is it so great? And they say, well, first of all, of course, it was a cultural amazing great civilization that we can p- compare with ancient Athens or wh- whatever you like. But it was also the time when China went out to the world. The Silk Road opened and great capitals, Chang'an, Xi'an, was full of people from Iran and Arabs and whatever. And culturally, it was stunning. And then nearly everybody that you, in your little vox pop standing with the shoppers in the Shanghai Expo, will also say is, and the poetry. And poetry in China, it has a completely different status to, to what it does in the West. You know, For the Chinese people, who've often had governments that are, let's say, um, make it difficult to really speak your mind about lots of things. In poetry, you can. And the poets are always deemed to be the historians, the true carriers of the nation's feelings and, and so on. So does poetry enjoy a greater status in China than it would do, say, in Europe? It, yes, 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 than in the West and more widely known at ordinary people's levels. And you can say things in poetry that you might not be able to say to to the politician, now that everybody knows what you mean, even though the poem was written a thousand years ago. And people forget the great poetic tradition in China is older than any other living poetic traditions. The Book of Songs, for example, great anthology of poems about love and war and work and everything else, is older than Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. You know, so this is we're talking about... M- one of the world's major cultural achievements. And Dufu, who lives in the late Tang dynasty, is generally accepted to be the greatest of all the Chinese poets. And the reasons are very interesting because usually poets are kind of, not all, but they're members of the privileged classes and the the really great poets, although everybody wrote poetry. But his life, and that's what makes the story so fantastic, is that he was born into a, a privileged upper-class family and he had a kind of life mapped ahead of him of privilege and to become a civil servant and all the rest but a series of happenstances change all that i mean the first and almost uh, even he laughs at it is that he, fa- he fails his examinations <laughs> not once but twice and there were reasons for that and he was obviously a person, a difficult person who actually is criticised for speaking his mind too much, and they, they probably didn't like that. But he, he has to go on a different path because he, he fails his examinations. And so he's in a deadbeat, two-bit job with a young family and a new wife, and in verging already on middle age, when the most catastrophic war in Chinese history breaks out, the Great Rebellion of An Lushan. And it's a war on, in terms of the, the most the wars with the biggest casualties in world history is one of those. You know, The Tang dynasty censuses from before and after the war have a difference of about 36 million people. Now, they weren't all killed, of course. It may have been 
Somewhere between 10 and 20 million actually died, but scholars are divided on that. But the many, many more driven into exile and as refugees and famine, disease, along with war. And it was absolute catastrophe. And Dufu was swept up in all this. And the most powerful thing about his poetry is that he becomes a refugee. And he, for 12 years, effectively, he goes from place to place with his family, staying on, you know, friends give him a bit of land and he builds a thatched cottage and then war comes and he moves on. And so his poetry starts to reflect these immense tragedies. And I've compared it in the book that I've written about him with the First World War poets, for example, who the contrast between the golden age in which he was born, the incredible cultural achievements, and the nightmare, that's what the great poetry starts to explore. And I've compared it with First World War poets, with Freud. Freud wrote this famous book on mourning and melancholia in, in the middle of the First World War when you could see that all the ideals of Western civilization were grinding remorselessly into the horrors of the trenches. And you could mourn as much for an ideal of civilization as you could for somebody you love most strongly, you know. And so that's, first of all, the great war poetry is absolutely phenomenal. And always in the tongue, there's a kind of self-reflexive intimacy about the the way that this is expressed, which it doesn't appear yet in any other poetry in the world. A great sinologist said that, you know, this change happens in poetry in different cultures at different times. In England, really, that transformation happens in the 16th century. In France, not perhaps until the 19th. In China, it's already in the 8th, you know, where the poetry goes to this level of irony and self-reflexivity. And it's a really a fantastic moment. And then he goes beyond that into this phase, which I've again tried to compare for the benefit of Western readers with Western poets, who in the later phases of Western poets were real masters of the medium, and maybe not only in literature, but even in music, possibly, like, you know, Bach, Beethoven, and the art of fugue and stuff, where they, they're so much the masters of their medium that they go off into an area of experimentation that almost kind of takes them beyond what the audience can possibly cope with. But, you know, unlike Shakespeare, who you could obviously, is an example of somebody who did that, Dufu still works within the tradition. So it's a great life story, you know, and he dies in poverty on a boat, sick and ill, and he wasn't really reputed as a truly great poet until some years after his death. So how was his work disseminated? How did he earn his fame and his great reputation enjoys today? Yeah, no, no, it's a very interesting question, which ties in with all sorts of big questions about how anything gets disseminated at that time. You know, in the West, you can look at this period and see how great works of classical literature only survive because one manuscript copy has survived from a monastery somewhere. In his case, in the 8th century, printing had not yet been invented in a in mass printing, and I mean, the principles of it were known. But And so the early copies of his work were in manuscript, and a manuscript edition was produced, a limited selection of his stuff for a few decades after his death. And then in the 11th century, there's a major manuscript edition of most of his work. And that's turned into print very soon after that in the 11th century. But once it was all there in print, then he starts to be recognised as the great Chinese poet. And all the great Chinese poets who followed him over the, the centuries 
many of them great ones women all were inspired by his way of seeing you know and chinese people if you ask them about him they'll say well of course he's they use this word sincerity you know that he's he's really upfront about everything you know <laughs> it's kind of his own amour propre his hypochondria his kind of and he writes about all sorts of things he writes about cooking noodles or planting lettuces and always drawing a moral from it and they're very funny some of them and he writes a poem about his favorite horse you know the old horse who's been with the family and they've gone like the swiss those epics from the second world war where the family kind of cross mountains and go through horrors and are starving and freezing and the old horse is pulling the cart and he writes this poem saying you've been with us for so long and i kind of and i love you you know and, and he writes about you know just what looking at white bait on a on a market stall he writes a poem about sustainable fishing you know that is really wrong to you, you shouldn't harvest the eggs of these creatures, you know. Or his favourite tree. I thought about him recently when the tree on Hadrian's Wall was chopped down. And uh, he wrote a poem about his how the felling of his favourite tree in a storm and the, the life force of the tree, you know. So he's very easy to identify with even 1,500 years later. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. You feel you're really with him, you know. Even the Anglo-Saxon poetry from his time even though it's our culture, you can really get into the wanderer and the seafarer and stuff like that. They are, they're great, but nothing is quite as accessible as Dufu's and many others. You know, he's not the only one, of course. His friend Lee Bai is also paired with him as one of the greatest of all the poets. There were many of them. I mean, the other interesting thing that came out of this, which hadn't occurred to me long ago, is, and that's about in history the singing of poetry, you know, that Homer was sung. And a lot of the great Anglo-Saxon poetry was sung to a lyre. And I hadn't quite cottoned on how singing was a major part of the Chinese tradition until friends put me in touch with the still-living tradition of how you sing this sort of stuff. So tell us a little bit more about the book and how long did it take to write? Where did you go to do your research for the book? And you know, as you said earlier, you've loved Dufu's work for decades. Other than the fact that his poetry may have, may well have been sung, what new did you learn about him? Well, I mean, it wasn't something that I was seeking to find things new about. What I was trying to do was, if it really is a case, there's Shakespeare, Dante and Dufu. We don't know about him. Very few people have heard about him. And uh, therefore, the job of a I would call myself a popularizer in the sense that what we do in all our films and history over the years and culture and stuff like that is to put stuff out there that forms a link between the scholars and the general public, you know. And unless that link exists, then the scholarship is in a vacuum. And the public, it's great that the general public should know about these things. And I'm not trying to force anything down anybody's throat, but... If you sit and tell somebody the story, they go, wow, that's absolutely amazing. So that was the intent behind it. The journey was made just before the COVID outbreak happened in China in the end of 2019. So it was the COVID outbreak was literally weeks away. And I followed the route of the wanderings, went to his birthplace. But then once the war happens... Then I followed the route that he and his family, once he'd cut loose from even hoping ever to have a job in government anymore and all that, and he simply was trying to save the family, 
then I followed the route. And of course, it's a tragic story. You know, one of his children dies of starvation when he's away. And he gets back to the village and discovers that the boy has died, which he never forgot. The last poem he ever wrote mentions the death of his child. And so I followed the route over the mountains down to Sichuan and then down the, the Yangtze River. Of course, the Yangtze Gorges, where he lived for quite some time and wrote his greatest poetry, they've been changed irrevocably by the Three Gorges Dam, where the water's 500 feet deeper than it was. So in the book, I've found wonderful old photographs, some of them hand-tinted from more than 100 years ago, where you can see the landscape that he knew. And you can say in the photograph, well, he lived up the hill on the left-hand side, just beyond that pagoda, you know, or, or stuff like that. So I simply followed the route right down to the place where he died in Pinjang in Hunan, where there's a lovely little memorial hall and shrine to him, you know, still. So it was as simple as that, really. It was just a, having loved him for so long, it was almost like a kind of a little payment which I think anybody who loves history, that's what you do, isn't it? You, you go to places, things that have affected you over a long period of time, people whose lives have been inspiring. And he's still a big character. You think about Stratford-upon-Avon and Shakespeare and the tourism in Stratford-upon-Avon. The site of his thatched cottage in Chengdu is still a major tourist thing. So in, in the book, I actually sit down and talk to some of the tourists in the in Chengdu, sitting there in the rain, saying, well, why do you love him? What do you do? You know, what's your favourite poem? And, and so on. History in China is another of those great things and that people associate the poets and the historians very closely. And I remember seeing a thing by somebody who lived through the Japanese invasion of China in the 1930s. And as a child walking down the streets of his, his hometown, burning after the bombings by the Japanese. And somebody across one of the walls had written the, the first line of one of Du Fu's most famous poems. So his poetry speaks to generations of Chinese people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The state is destroyed, but the country remains, is the opening line. <laughs> and this was, this was there on the, the burning walls in the Japanese invasion. You know. So he's still widely revered in China and has been for centuries. Yeah, you study him in school. But is that a sentiment that's been shared by China's rulers over the centuries? I mean, what is the relationship being between his poetry and those in power in China? Yeah, I think the rulers, of course, education is always the, the highest importance in Chinese culture. And therefore, he's always been a part of educated people's lives. The choice of his poems that he's made tends to be to corroborate the state, and therefore certain aspects of it, like his loyalty to the state, which of course people forget is his loyalty to the idea of a just state. And there are poems which are bitterly critical of the failures of government and all that, but those tend to not be the ones that are pushed. And that's been the same with the Communist Party too. And I think when the Cultural Revolution happened in the 60s, and Chairman Mao called on the youth, especially the Red Guards, to destroy old habits, old customs and old beliefs. He was one of the targets along with everybody else, you know. So they actually, the Red Guards actually went to the memorial place where I was speaking of in Pinjiang and smashed it, daubed the walls with slogans of the Red Guards, which are still on the walls, slightly 
faded now and scrubbed away, but they're still there, the Red Guard slogans. And they even dug up his tomb, intending to desecrate his body, and as they did with Confucius and all the great figures of traditional Chinese culture. There was no body in the tomb, interestingly enough. I think it had been moved by the family the following century. But I think he was viewed as one of the old habits, old customs, old traditions. But since the opening up and the reform in 78, 79, the buildings have all been restored, and he's been restored to his place as a great figure. And President Xi Jinping, of course, is one of his three great planks of Chinese renewal, as he sees it, is the greatness of Chinese civilization. And Xi Jinping, on a number of occasions, has talked about his own love of Dufu and how when he was a teenager himself doing hard labor in the countryside for re-education, Dufu was his great solace. He said that on more than one occasion. Finally, Michael, just for our listeners, if they were to start with one piece of work by Dufu, which one would you recommend? There's two or three poems that I'd look at. And one of the most famous is called 500 Words on the Road to Fengxian. And it's an absolutely amazing poem because he describes what it was like. He's trapped in the capital. It's been terrible floods and natural disasters. The war hasn't broken out yet, but famine, floods and everything else. He's worried about his family and he gets time to go and try and go and visit them. And he sets out at midnight. And it's so cold, he can't even tie his, the broken string that is holding his robe together. And he passes the royal palaces where he hears the music and the, uh, the roistering of the rich. And, the, and he talks about how the, the exotic foods and the beautiful clothes and the fabulous women and everybody inside the palaces, but outside the gates are the bones of the starving. And he reflects on this and it builds and it builds. And then he finally gets to the village and there's just the house is crying and his child is dead. And it's an amazing, amazing poem. But that's some, what, some, one of his longer poems. And the shorter poem I would choose it would be Spring Scene, which is the, the famous one with Guopor Shanher's eye. The state is destroyed, but the country remains. And he's wandering through the capital after the war has broken out and the rebellion has devastated everything. And the, the serpentine lake where the royal palaces are is now derelict and the palaces are kind of boarded up and half of it's damaged and destroyed. And he walks furtively on this trip one day and he reflects on the, the state is destroyed, but the country remains. And he talks about the beacon fires have been burning for three months now, and a word from home would be worth 10,000 in gold, you know. And, and the poem ends with him saying, and my hair's getting so thin now, it'll hardly take the hairpin, you know, which Chinese men used. So those give you a little sense of his variety and range and his humanity. You know, it's his humanity that is the great thing, as it is in all great poetry, you know. And I, th I think, you know, we're a history podcast, and the, the thing is, History and poetry cannot be divided in Chinese culture. The, the poets are the historians, and the poets are the real truth-tellers. And Dufu, of, of all the great Chinese poets, is the poet-historian, because he writes about the great rebellion and the wars, and the, it's an amazing record of times written by a poet, not a historian. But now... It's such an invaluable record to the historians because he's telling you exactly what it felt like. I walked among the ruined palaces and this is what it was like. 
it's the record of it's what we all look for in history isn't it the biggest thing you hope to get is the voices of the people of the past that, that's the most important thing if you can feel what it was like to be them and his voice is person of the past speaking to us with such straightforward amazing power and intimacy that there's no kind of record like that earlier in human civilization it seems to me that was michael wood his latest book in the footsteps of dufu is published by simon and schuster and is on sale now thanks for listening to the history extra podcast this podcast was produced by daniel Kramer. 